today from Acts 26, 24 through 32. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, are you out of your mind? Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were, with, who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, So for those of you that don't know me, my name is Tony Pitts. Uh, My wife Stacy and I have been here for about two and a half years now. And later today, uh, as Benjamin said, uh, you'll be voting to affirm me as an elder. Uh, So one of the things I'll try and do this morning is share a bit about myself um, as, as we go through these two chapters in Acts. I've titled my sermon, The Can't Help It's. Uh, I'll try my best to explain what they are, how you get them, and what God wants us to do with them. Uh, first, let's, let's start out praying. All right. Father God, thank you for your word, Lord, that, uh, that you reveal yourself to us in a special way, Lord, that, that a way that uh, we can't get to know you through your creation, through nature, Uh, You reveal yourself in your word in a way that lets us understand who you are. uh, You are a God who who loves us and cares deeply for us. Um, I pray that we would be encouraged, Lord, to appreciate you more and more fully this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start out by saying... uh, it's a real privilege to, to preach this morning. Uh, it's been about 15 years since the last time I preached, um, although I'm sure my wife would disagree with that. Uh, I've been part of the church's elder team meetings now for a few months. Uh, some of the guys I've known for a long time uh, some of them not as long, but uh, I can honestly say the leadership team here is a group of guys who love God. They love God's word, and they love God's people, his church. Uh, so I said I'd explain what the phrase can't help it means for those of you who've never heard it. Uh, I heard it about 20 years ago in a sermon. The person preaching it 
described it as a passion that so consumes a person, they can't help but talk about it. Jesus says it this way in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. We tend to talk about the things our hearts are full of. So how does a person get the can't help it's for Jesus? In a word, I'd say it's influence. Often when we think of influence, we think about power. Maybe the power to control things, the power to have things go our way. But that's not what I'm talking about. I want you to think more influenza, like a virus. Something we all know a lot about from this last year. Influence and influenza come from the same Latin word, influentia. It means to flow into. And so for the type of influence I'm talking about, someone has to first pour into you before you can pour into others. It starts with Jesus pouring himself into us. The third point I want to focus on is this. What does God tell us to do once we've been influenced, once we've caught the can't help it's? Simply put, God tells us to go and influence others. Pour your new life into others. Having spent three years pouring his life into the lives of his disciples, Jesus says this to his disciples. Let's look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So you see, as we do this thing he tells us to do, he promises to be with us as we do it. So I've explained what the can't help it's are, how you get them, and what we are to do with them once we have them. I'll try and share my particular case of the can't help it's after we look at Paul's and what's going on in chapter 25 and 26 from Acts. Now, for some reason, as part of a, a sort of pastor-elder hazing ritual, they thought it would be funny to assign me with the largest section from the book of Acts in this series, two whole chapters. Uh, Seriously, after looking at chapter 25, I actually asked that I would also be able to include chapter 26 because I just love Paul's dramatic conversion and how radically it changes him. As we look at the 25th chapter of Acts, things are looking kind of rough for Paul. He's been sitting in prison for two years. He's been falsely accused by the Jewish religious leaders, mainly because they know They can't have him executed for the real reason they want him executed, which is that he keeps telling people that Jesus is alive and he's the savior they've been waiting for. And apparently, Paul is so convincing that everywhere he goes, he leaves a community of new Christians in his wake. And man, has he been going. It's estimated that up to this point, Paul has traveled more than 25,000 miles by sea and over 8,000 miles by foot. What could be driving a man to go like this? It's almost like he can't help it. 
He's been left in prison for two years by the governor Felix, handed off to Festus, the new governor, who knows Paul's innocent, but for political reasons, he leaves him in prison to do the Jewish leaders a favor. So Festus offers to Paul that he could be tried in Jerusalem. Paul says no to Jerusalem because he knows the Jewish leaders want to murder him on the way. So Paul instead asks to be sent to Rome, which is his right as a Roman citizen to be tried in Rome. Now it happens that Agrippa, the Jewish king, and his female companion, Bernice, are arriving in Caesarea. Caesarea is where Paul's at in prison. Festus lays out Paul's case for Agrippa and Bernice. And we see this in Acts chapter 25, verses 14 through 19. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priest and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. And so we see here at the heart of this dispute, is Jesus. Is he dead or alive? It's a very important question then. It's a very important question now. Is Jesus dead or alive? Because if he's dead, Paul's delusional. He's going around just spreading a dangerous lie. And so are we. But if he's alive, that changes everything. That was true then, and it's true now. And so I'll ask you, is the Jesus that you believe in, is he alive? Does your life show that you believe that? Do the words that come from your mouth show that your heart is full of this truth? And why does it matter? Why does the resurrection matter? Let's look at what Paul says to the Corinthians in his letter to them, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
Why is this so important to the Christian faith? What is so pitiful about a Christian whose Jesus is not alive? Paul tells us in verse 17, a Jesus who has not overcome death has not overcome sin either because he's not who he said he was, God. And he didn't do what the scripture said he would do, which is what? Let's look again at 1 Corinthians 15, this time verses 3 through 8. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so you see here, unlike all the other religions of the world that rely on private messages from God, to special individuals. Christianity relies on public events, an empty tomb, hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw Jesus alive after he had been dead. What these people testified to was something supernatural. And this is the message that Paul gives in his defense in chapter 26 as he speaks to King Agrippa. But first Paul lays out what is also very compelling about his witness. It's his life before he encounters the living Jesus. In verses 4 through 11 of Acts chapter 26, Paul details how he lived as a Pharisee, how he had opposed the Christians with the authority of the chief priest and not only locked Christians up just for being Christians, but he cast his vote to put them to death on many occasions. He traveled to foreign cities to do this. And then something happened to Paul. Something that beatings, prison, and even the threat of death could not make him stop telling people about. He met the living Jesus. He came to understand that God had entrusted to him, a mere man, this message that is the cure. The cure for sin and for death and the cure for a broken relationship with a loving God the cure for our broken relationships with one another. He describes it this way in Acts chapter 26, verses 12 through 18. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus. This is Paul sharing with them how he became a Christian. With the authority and commission of the chief priest, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, 
delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So I want you to see the contrast here. You have what the religious leaders are bringing to the people of how they can have a relationship with God. It's a set of rules and regulations, how to wash your hands, uh, versus what Paul's bringing, faith in the risen Christ and what he's done. This has always been what separates Christianity from every other way of having a relationship with God. It's the difference between do and done. We can place our faith in the things that we can do to try and earn our way into a relationship with God, or we can put our faith in what Jesus has done. So it's in the middle of making this defense that Festus interrupts Paul and tells him he must be crazy. This is Festus kicking against the goads. That is to say, he's fighting God. He's trying hard not to catch the can't help it. But Paul lets him know that what he is saying is in fact the most rational thing that a man can say. The idea that we can be good enough to have a relationship with a God who is holy, holy, holy on the basis of our good behavior when we all know that if we're honest, our behavior is not that good. That's the crazy idea. Paul goes on in verses 19 through 23 to explain to the king that it is for his testimony about this to the Jews as well as the Gentiles throughout all the region that the religious leaders were trying to kill him. And yet, because of God's help, he's able to stand before the king and tell the king about his encounter with Christ. So this is Paul speaking to the king in chains and a group of people who have mistreated him for well over two years. Paul says, For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Can you hear it? They can't help it. Paul's got them. And so even with this audience of people who've been nothing but cruel to him, Paul wants them to know about the living Jesus. He's so filled up with Christ that no matter where he is, no matter who he's speaking to, he just can't help it. Governor Festus calls him crazy. King Agrippa deflects, doing what Pastor Benjamin spoke about last week, spiritual procrastination. Agrippa doesn't say Paul isn't making sense. He just needs more time. I pray that when Jesus calls you, you don't react that way. So we never know how much time we have. Um, so now I'm going to shift gears, and, and I'm going to tell you about how it is that I got the can't help. It's about 30 years ago. I know what you're thinking. 30 years ago, wow, you must have been five years old. It's not that funny. Uh, 
So I grew up around here in Harrisburg, and across the street from us was a couple that loved to play tennis. They took me with them to the park, and they taught me to play. I was probably eight or nine years old. Their passion became my passion. When I was about 10, we moved to a new neighborhood. And shortly after moving to our new house, the township built a park with two tennis courts. My friends and I practically lived there. It was there that I met one of the best friends I've ever had. He was a couple years older than me, by far the best tennis player I'd ever met. I'm not talking about you, Bill. And even though he was much better than me at tennis, he would play with me for hours. As we got older, we spent a lot of time together, playing tennis, hanging out, getting drunk, and conducting ourselves in ways that I now know were not pleasing to God. Fast forward a few years, and now I've gone off to college. I haven't seen my friend Jim for years. I spent much of my time at school partying, sleeping around, basically just living a very selfish, self-centered life. I mostly thought about one person, me. I finish school, come back to Harrisburg, and I run into Jim, having not had any contact with him for a few years. And as I start to talk to him and suggest we go out drinking and chasing women, he quietly informs me that he's just not interested in that anymore. It wasn't preachy, it wasn't condescending, just a sincerely different guy than the guy I'd known before. Something had changed. I asked him, what's going on, man? Why are you so different? And he said, I've become a Christian, and God's given me new desires. Well, that just sounded weird to me. But I thought about what I usually thought about at the time, which was me. As I said, I was incredibly selfish, and so... That's usually what I was thinking about, me. So another few years go by. I've landed a decent job at a local department store, doing illustration, graphic design, still drinking, smoking pot almost daily. I get together with another friend. This one. He sees how much I'm drinking, and he asks me, do you think you have a problem? We talked about it, and he helped me to see that I did have a problem. He invited me to try an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting with him, and there I was introduced to the 12 steps of AA. The first three being, step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Check. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Hmm. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Wait, what? What's this got to do with alcohol? As I worked through these steps, that third one got me. God as I understood him. I had to admit I really didn't understand God much at all. In fact, if I was honest, I'd have to admit that I lived as if I was God. I made my own rules. 
I decided why I was here and what I should be busy with. As I began to wrestle with this step, I was at my mom's place one day, and she had a book on her coffee table. It was the Bible book of list, a small book with, well, a bunch of lists. Lists like 20 facts about angels and the musical instruments in the Bible. But the one that caught my eye was a list about Jesus. And the first thing on the list of things about Jesus was that he is God. And I thought, is this true? I had been to church before, thought I knew what was in the Bible, but this seemed like a very weird thing to me. I thought, who do I know that knows about Jesus? My old tennis buddy, Jim. So I grabbed a piece of paper, wrote myself a note, called Jim. For the first time in a long time, I said a short but very sincere prayer. I prayed, Jesus, if you really are God, would you show me today? Amen. And I headed off to the Christian bookstore to get myself a copy of this Bible book of list. When you know it, the bookstore did not have the book I was looking for, and I was quite disappointed. But as I came out of the store, getting out of his car next to mine was Jim. I hadn't seen him in years. I took the note from my pocket, showed it to him. He said, what's that? I said, just look at it. Call Jim. Me? Yeah. What were you going to call me for? I wanted to ask you about Jesus. His eyes welled up with tears. My eyes welled up with tears. And now maybe some of your eyes are welling up with tears. He invited me to church where I heard a clear presentation of the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. It became clear to me that I wasn't good enough to have a relationship with a holy God on my own merits. I understood for the first time that without Jesus... It was impossible, not difficult, impossible for me to please God and have a relationship with him. I understood for the first time that what Jesus did on the cross, he did for me to pay for my sin, not in part, but in full. By all that Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection, I was reconciled to the God that made me and everything else. Once I understood, I surrendered to Christ and was baptized. I've had that can't help it ever since. I think that many of us can recall a time when we had the can't help it. A time when the awesome grace of God was so real and so wonderful to us that we wanted to tell everyone we met. But the truth is we live in a world that tells us that kind of faith is weird. Even like Festus said, crazy. We're told that our beliefs about God, especially the supernatural parts, are to be a private matter. We're to treat it like a case of COVID. Keep it to yourself. Many of us have let this pressure to conform all but extinguish the fire that Jesus once set in your heart. Might I encourage you that Jesus isn't the disease. He's the cure. Some of you have been inoculated with a version of Christianity that has a wise and loving but dead Jesus. Or perhaps a Jesus who isn't really God, a sort of almost God that serves like a vaccine to keep you from catching the real thing. 
But Luke is showing us here that in Paul's life and in ours as well, God and Jesus Christ supernaturally pours himself into us so that we can pour ourselves into others. It's what we were made for. My hope is this, that we would be a body of believers that are constantly being filled with Christ through his word in the Bible, through his people in the church, and through our prayers made possible by his finished work on the cross, and then constantly pouring his life into others, knowing that we will never outpour him. Will you pray with me? Father God, uh, thank you, Lord, for giving us the greatest gift of all, yourself. Lord, you pour your life and your love and your grace into us when we are dead in our sins. You bring us back to life. You give us new life that we can pour into others. I pray that you would help us to be a church that does that well for your glory and your honor. In your name we pray, amen.